You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. You've heard the expression, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Some people believe it, and their belief moves them into the light. Others don't believe it. They remain in the dark. Today's guest is a woman who lived a long time in the dark, battling manic depression and borderline personality disorder, using crazy pills, as she calls them, to cope with life. Then she made a strong decision to change her narrative. She walked away from a 20-year marriage and a life of shame, blame, and voices that told her she was inherently flawed. She walked into a new life as a gifted healer and clairvoyant. She has written two books, Awakening to Me, One Woman's Journey to Self-Love, and The Second Wave, Transcending the Human Drama. And she hosts a podcast called Soul Nectar. Get ready to step into your light with Kerry Hummingbird. Kerry, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. It's delightful to be here. Let's have some fun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Where were you born? I was born in Dallas, Texas, and I lived there for the first couple of years of my life. And then I moved all around the country through a series of events. <laughs> Where do you live now? I live in Austin, Texas, so I came full circle back to Texas. Okay. But I lived on the East Coast, like you. I lived in uh, Connecticut through junior high and high school. I went to college in Northampton, Massachusetts. So I've lived I lived in California. I, li- I worked in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. So I've lived all around, all around in a big loop. And uh, which is your favorite place? I have to say right now my favorite place to live is where I'm at because I really like Austin. I think there's got a, a lot of consciousness communities happening here, which I really enjoy. But then when you asked me that question, what flashed in my mind was Hawaii. (laughs) So I think I really love Hawaii, but I guess maybe I couldn't figure out how to make a living there. You ask the right sources and (laughs) you'll get the answer. That's true. I have a friend who used to teach in Austin and he loved it as well. Um, I've never been there myself. I don't think I have. I've been to diff- <laughs> no, I'm serious. I've been to different sections of Texas, but I don't think it was Austin. Anyway, I'd like to know who influenced you most when you were a child. The, the biggest influence in my life has been my dad, my stepfather, who I met at five years old as uh, my mother was married to my first stepfather, who was a violent drunk. And... I was walking in, I don't know why I was alone in an apartment complex, but I was walking around our apartment complex, and there was this man sitting on the steps, and he was really kind. He was very kind and nice, and that was my stepdad. That man became my stepdad. 
So my mom left the first husband, the first stephusband, and uh, married my dad. Mm. And how did he influence you? My dad uh, is probably one of the few examples of unconditional love I've experienced in my life. Um, unconditional love to me, meaning that he never gave up on me. He never turned his back on me. He was always there, even if it was really hard what was going on in our family or between us. He never gave up. And he always helped me to to see that there were multiple pathways I could walk down. He taught me everything he knew in terms of making good decisions and being a good person. And he just he just had this um, forgiveness about him. You know, he just saw everything as a learning. And that really... So much of his wisdom is what guides me today. I really, um, I just love him. He just, he just exemplified so many things that I strive for in my own life. Mm, that's wonderful. Now, did you have a childhood dream of who you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, it's funny. I, I wanted to be a storyteller. And isn't that funny? Because now, in a way, I really am. I, I've been telling stories my whole life. It's just that some of the stories I told got me in some, some tunnels in my life that were problematic. And other stories, you know, open you up to a new possibility. And I remember when I was maybe seven or eight, I wrote my first storybook. And it was like a cartoon book. I drew the characters and I wrote a little story about them. And, and my parents actually ended up creating a printed version of it, like made an actual book. And that was so cool. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because my belief is that, I mean, we are, human beings are storytelling machines. <laughs> yes, we are. I mean, we are. I mean, whether we, a lot of people are just not aware and they won't acknowledge that. They say that's nonsense, you know, um, but they don't really examine the thought patterns that are constantly swirling around in their brains, and those are narratives, and they may seem random, but I think we're creating them moment by moment. We absolutely are. At some point on my healing journey, I realized that I had a powerful gift of spider medicine. And if you think about what spider is, spider weaves a web. It weaves a beautiful web. And then those webs trap flies and other insects and wrap them up for food later on. And so I realized that I was using my spider medicine to wrap myself up in my own web. And then that web could suck the life out of me. You know? And so I decided maybe I should use my spider medicine in a different way. Well, yeah, I mean, welcome to the club. That's what most human beings are unconsciously doing, you know, <laughs> all the time, right? It's, uh, so I'm just curious, when did you discover your talent for leadership? So I've always been the new kid on the block. Uh, my parents, my mom moved around a lot, obviously, uh, with a couple of uh, different fathers, and we moved around a lot. We had different environments. And then when we got with my stepdad, we moved around a lot. So I was always needing to ingratiate myself with others in order to have friends and moving into communities where there were, you know, there were cliques and there were people that, that just lived there and you were the new one. So I really learned how to read other people, 
and how to see the group dynamics that were going on. And it was really just self-preservation. But it turned into uh, leadership because I was able to get along with other people. I learned how to read them, how to know what they were thinking, how to see the group dynamics. And and then I started noticing that if I got really excited about something, other people would tend to get excited about it too and want to follow along. So they wanted to do it with me and I wanted to have friends. So that's that's a simple way that it began. And then I just found that I just kept ending up in leadership positions everywhere I went at work or, you know, in the community. I just ended up leading. I love that story. I mean, it reminds me a bit of how I became a storyteller. And it was like, for survival, basically. Um, <laughs> it was on the streets of New York. Um, yeah. I began to, it was my way of avoiding getting killed, basically. I I would charm with my narratives the tough guys in the neighborhood. And they began to like me. And when I saw, hey, I can do this with my mind and my words, I began to develop that as a real skill. You know? Yeah, survival is a good reason to do it. Well, yeah, life and death. I mean, it's always the greatest motivation. You know, I'm an actor, and we always talk about whatever you're fighting for in a scene, make the stakes life and death. Yes. And then the scene will come alive. You know? It will come alive. That's right. It gets yeah. that primal energy. That's right. So what led you to choose a career as a technical and marketing communications consultant? So this was after I graduated college, and I was living back at my parents' house, as many people do after college, and going, why did I just spend four years spending all that money on college if I'm just going to come back home and live with my parents? And every job I tried to get locally in Massachusetts, they were hiring people with families because there was a recession. So they said, normally this would be your job, but... It's not your job right now because there's a recession. We've got to hire this person that's got a family. And I thought, man, I can't get a break. So I thought, all right, well, what do I have? I have English. My father made me take uh, computer science, my dad. So I had English and computer science. And so when I put those two together in my mind, my mind said Silicon Valley. So I went to Silicon Valley and I interviewed for a technical writing job and I got it. And the funny story is I actually interviewed for two different jobs. I interviewed for a technical writing job, which is very boring and dry, but steady and stable. And I also interviewed for a marketing job at a different company that was way more fun sounding and I'd be traveling all around, but it was completely not stable because the company could fold. So I ended up choosing a steady job, which was like my dad. Instead of the fun job, which was like his brother, my uncle, my uncle was so fun all the time. And he always would pick like the edge of your seat occupation. He's a sailor. He sailed all around the world on sailboats. I mean, this man is amazing. He's a salesperson. He's just really on the edge. And when I was making that decision, it was like I was choosing like which one, which voice am I going to listen to? <laughs> the one that's fun or the one that says, like, you know, be responsible and, and do your job. So I picked the responsible voice because I loved my dad. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Years later, I wonder what would have happened if I had picked the marketing job, <laughs> you know, because I wouldn't have gone to the meeting of technical writers where I met my ex-husband. Hmm. 
I'm meeting your ex-husband. That wasn't a great thing. Well, it was, it was a flash of lightning across the room. And it was those moments where I thought, oh, wow, this is it. There's the flash of lightning. This is it. This is the man because there's the flash. And it didn't deter me that right away we had to start going to counseling. I mean, within the first month of dating each other, we were in counseling. And that didn't deter me because I said, no, there was the flash of light. That definitely means this is true love. We see, <laughs> Carrie, here, here's what I'm thinking, that you didn't, you didn't recognize the movie you were watching. You see, sometimes there are flashes of lightning in romantic stories. But this, you're probably watching like, you know, a, a Dracula story. And there was a flash of light and you go, Wow, how wonderful. But you didn't see who was coming out of the shadows. Right, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> what was coming out of the shadows was like all of our my karma, you know, all of my ancestral karma and my personal karma and all the you know, all the deep dark stuff that I came here to work on apparently in this life. So that all came out of the closet and it didn't know until 8 years ago. So after I left the, that relationship, a few years after I left that relationship, I went to my first training with Alberto Vialdo at the Four Winds, and it's a it's energy medicine training. And the first thing he says as he walks in the room is, you know, first of all, you chose your parents, and we're all like gasping, like why would we do that to ourselves, you know, like oh no. And the second thing he said was, when you see that flash across the room and you think that's true love, you should run because that person probably killed you in another life, and I think that's probably true. Of my former relationship. Hmm. Sounds like the makings of a great marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of personal development work done. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> trying sure. to make it work. So, what events led to the end of that marriage? Well, I think what led to the end of it was just the exhaustion of trying to make it work. And when you, you know, that relationship for me was a lot of blaming and shaming and was pointing fingers at each other, was trying to make each other wrong for everything, and was, you know, there was also fun. I mean, we had great fun, which kept it together, right? Like, we could go and spend money and, and go on a trip and have a great time and then come back to our home and each other and then have this struggle again, you know, this controlling in each other's pockets and trying to blame each other. And you do that for 20 years, and you're pretty much sick of it. And I think that... um I was the one going to psychotherapy, too, for most of that time. So it was sort of like the message was, this really is all your fault because it's not me. And it's just some problem that you have. And I thought, well, after about 20 years of that, I thought one day, if it's not solved by now, I don't think it's going to get solved. And my behavior and my ability to be happy is so far gone that at that point I was cheating on my husband and then telling him I was doing it mm. and he, he was okay with that he was like oh all right well I guess that's what you need and I thought this is even more wrong like this, shouldn't you be angry I mean shouldn't you be like kicking me out of the house I mean what is wrong with this equation nothing's working the way I think it should and I just I just said somebody's got to be the responsible person here and end this thing and it was having an effect on our kids you know, because the wild behavior and the parties and everything we had to do to make ourselves, quote, happy when we weren't happy 
was behavior that was, you know, madness. I mean, just lots of partying, lots of drinking, you know, heading over to her neighbor's house and they're just getting so drunk that you almost can't even drive home. This this kind of behavior so you can cope with having a family together is not an environment to raise kids in. And when you when you don't even love yourself enough to have self-respect, and I just thought, this we've got to end this. This is not the way I want my life to go down, and this isn't the way I want to raise my kids. I don't want this anymore. I want something real, real love. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you very clearly. Uh, that is a pattern that a lot of people fall into, and um, they either work through it or they don't. I think you kind of answered the next question about how long did you live with the feeling that something wasn't right in your life? You know, as soon as I gave birth to my first son is when I started realizing things weren't right. Like I had a deep inner emptiness that I became aware of when I gave birth to my son. I think up until then I was able to hide it or mask it with accomplishments, you know, like getting a nice promotion or getting a bunch of new clients or, you know, career success or being involved in the neighborhood and being well-regarded and all of those surface level things. I did all those things and I was a super accomplisher, but I had this deep sadness inside of me. I had this deep black hole inside my heart. And I became aware of it when I had my first child. And I thought, there's something really, really wrong with what's happening right now in my life. Was there some pivotal event that inspired you to take action to make things right? I mean, when you said you just, you know, you you decided to walk out. So what sparked that? Well, I got a vision, which I didn't get a whole lot of those. I didn't know what those were, but, you know, spirit messages. I got this vision of the end of the rope, like when there's a ship and the ship is tied up to the dock and it has that big old knot at the end of the rope. I actually saw that in my hand and then I saw it just fly out of my hand and I thought, that's the end of the rope. And I had no idea that that's how it would happen. I'd already heard, I was always heard that phrase, that's the end of the rope, you know, like yeah. We're done here. But I didn't know I would actually see the end of the rope when it was the end of the rope. So I did. I saw it and I said, oh, that's the end of the rope. It's time to go. And I had a conversation with him. I sat down and I said, listen, I just saw the end of the rope. <laughs> and, I, and that's telling me that I got to go. Like this, this situation between us is not resolving itself, is not getting better. You're not in therapy. I'm going to therapy you know, now it's like I had diagnosis on diagnosis, sort of like evidence that it was all my fault. And I just thought, you know, I can't live this way. I, I can't live with somebody who doesn't take partial responsibility for the relationship. I can't live taking the whole thing and having everything be my fault. I can't do that anymore. I've got to go and find out who I really am and get free of this control, this this feeling I have that there's just nothing I can do that's right. So that was really the moment when I got that vision. And combined with that vision, I think within a few weeks of that vision, there was a nightmare that I had where I was in this, and I'd had this repeating nightmare, but this particular version of it was really bad. I walked into this um, really ancient house, and I was walking up into um, a bedroom where there was a gilded mirror on the wall, and as I walked up to the, the mirror and I looked 
in and I saw my face, all of a sudden I, I was being choked by something and I couldn't scream out for help. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, I just couldn't even gasp for air. It's like it was strangling me. And then I saw in the mirror this like old shrew and she just yelled at me like, I hate you. And she just kept yelling it at me. And I thought, that's just, I popped out of that dream in a hot sweat. And I, I was like, this is, I've got to do something. I mean, I've got to move on. I've got to leave. I've got to jump. And I don't even know what's next, but I've got to do it. Wow. So once you began to reclaim your life, what were the inner narratives you had to confront and change? Just about every inner narrative. <laughs> so, you know, I think the biggest one I had was that I'm crazy. There was this narrative in my family with my with my the father of my children and with, and with my mother that I was crazy and that I was just seeing things all wrong and it's all backwards and they're not doing anything and it's all me. That idea that there's just something inherently flawed about me. That was the major narrative that needed shifting. And it took me a long time of a lot of work with various spiritual teachers to shift that narrative because it was it was deep in there. It was very deep down inside my psyche, almost from the beginning of my life. So that one took a long time to unwind. And it had a lot of different flavors to it, a lot of different ways that it showed up, different, you know, different voices it would have or different things that, that my mind would say to me. And all of those things had to be shifted to finally understand who I am in truth. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you when, to finally write that book, which I'm sure was part of your journey into the light? I mean, Awakening to Me, One Woman's Journey to Self-Love. Yes, um, that book was actually part of my journey. When I uh, walked out of the marriage, within about six months, I got connected with a shamanic practitioner in Austin who has a, a course called uh, Spirit, uh, the Quest for Authenticity, Spirit Paths. And so I signed up for that course. And as soon as I signed up for that course and I started working uh, to understand about the Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz and about tuning into my senses and not thinking so much from my mind but feeling from my heart and all the things that that course taught Within like the first month, I got this message that said, you're going to start writing a book about your journey to love. You are charting the course out of madness. And I like thought, I'm charting the course out of madness. Okay. And that was the deal. It was like, you're going to write this book. You're going to write it the whole way through your healing journey. And you're going to be totally honest, completely transparent. So I started writing that book, and there were many times I wanted that book to be done because I'm like, I love myself already. But I didn't actually. I wasn't there yet. I wanted to be there, but I wasn't there yet. It took me two years, two years to write that book. And I would say that even since I published that book, and that was 2014, it's now 2019, five years later, my journey to self-love keeps deepening. Like what I thought was self-love in 2014 is like a thimbleful of the love I feel now. 
And I feel like that is the journey that you get on when you walk the beauty way, when you really walk in step with the great spirit, God, source, creator, universe, whatever your, your name is, you, you, you get to this place where the love expands and you think, I can't possibly receive any more love. And then more love comes. So that's the journey I've been on. And it took me two years to write the first, you know, to, to get to the first plateau of love, let's call it that, and to publish the book. And, and it was funny the way it ended because I thought this book has been going on and on and on. Like how much more do I love myself, you know, when I get done with this book? Because I'm very impatient. I just wanted to finish the book. And then something else would happen and I go, oh, man, that's got to go in the book. When's the book over? You know, like, come on, I love myself. Can we stop? But we couldn't stop yet because we weren't there yet. So it was um, it was really awkward to me then or, or questionable to me then when near the end, all of a sudden, it was like, okay, you've got to do all the drawings for the book and cover and get it published in a week. And I'm like, in a, why with such a big hurry? You know, why I got to get it done in a week? I mean, we're waiting all this other time and it's taken so long. How come now it's got to get done? So I just obeyed and I did all the things and I finished the book and I published it. And I thought, okay, why the heck did I have to rush like that? And then the very next, that night, I think I was taking a bath. I'm looking on my phone and I see that there's a deadline the next day for the Indie Spiritual Book Awards competition. And I'm like, oh. So I entered it and I ended up getting best in category. Mm. And that was pivotal because the support I got from the people that are involved with that program at the time was really amazing. And so it was more than just the award. It was like being connected and validated by these particular people was a huge part of my journey. Uh, you... Is Louise Hay part of that? No, not Louise uh, Hayes. Um, it's H-A-Y, Louise. It's Lois Wetzel. I see. Okay. You know, it's interesting you were talking about, you know, I love myself now is enough, but I guess you discovered that, I mean, that's there is no limit to that. There's no limit. Like the no. love just keeps expanding. Like you think it's all done. You're like, I'm good now. I'm good. I'm good. And then you realize that's just your ego blocking love. You know, oh man. Then you got to tear that wall down and, and let the love flood in. And then there's even more love. So yeah, every time you think that's it, it's the ego blocking it. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's really, you know, the mind can't grasp eternity and an eternal experience of any kind, right? The, uh, you familiar with the theologian? His name was Paul Tillich. No, I have not. He, he has the best definition of God I've ever heard. You ready for this one? Yes. It's just two words. Eternal now. Ah, yes. <laughs> God is the eternal now. So if you're really in the present, you're experiencing the Godhead. I spend a lot of time there in the now and in flow. And then sometimes I realize I've been in flow and in now for a really long time. And then I go, my ego pipes up and it's like, what if I forget all of this? Like it wants to hold on to all of it, like everything. It wants yeah, to hold can't. on to no, every you, experience. You can't. You know, you know what's fascinating? 
I'm an actor, and the acting experience really, really is what you're describing, what we're talking about. Because, for instance, great actors have the ability to be always in the moment. And like if you're on stage or in a performance and you do something that you really love, the biggest mistake is to come back the next night when you do that play and try to recapture that. Yes. Or if you make a mistake, if you hold on to it, you're going to screw up the rest of your performance because you're not in the moment. You're not in the now. It's the same thing. It is. It's a constant letting go. And that's when I became Carrie Hummingbird, that's what I did. Like I had a spirit vision of a hummingbird in rainbow light um, doing a drum journey manifestation to buy my current house, which was under contract with somebody else. And as soon as I had that meditation, I was visualizing being in the house and manifesting being in the house and I'm living here. And then in my mind, my grandparents who are deceased were came to the house and they really liked it and everything was so beautiful. And then I was going to wrap up the journey like, okay, I think I manifested my house, you know, like I did it, you know. And I, I look in the kitchen in my dream, I look out the kitchen of the house and there's this rainbow light swoosh with this hummingbird hovering in the center of the window. And it just took my breath away. I thought, I didn't do that. I didn't make that happen. That just happened. And it and the second like that I was done being in awe of that, the phone rang and my realtor told me that the house was mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's cool. So I decided, well, I'm going to change my name because I was getting divorced, you know, and I'd been adopted and all these things. Like, what's my name really? And I wanted to claim myself, so I called myself Carrie Hummingbird. What was your name? My name was, uh, my adopted name was Carrie Lonsby. Okay. It was my dad's name, my stepdad's name, and I love my dad. And I think it really hurt his feeling that I wanted to change my name. But I think he understood that it was because I needed to claim my own identity. Like, I needed something that was mine. And... This was it. And I didn't even know who Carrie Hummingbird was. Like, I just thought, I started asking myself, well, what would Carrie Hummingbird do? You know, because I knew I wasn't there yet. I was like, well, what would Carrie Hummingbird say? What would Carrie Hummingbird do? And it's like you say, like, it was like, there's this character, there's this being, this being that was Carrie Hummingbird already out there, already existing. And I was just tapping into her and asking her, like, well, what would you say right now? What would you do right now? Because I know I'm not you yet, but I'm on my way to becoming you. And I just really want to emulate you because I love you and I respect you. And I just want to be that. I forgot which of the great writers said this, but it may have been Shaw. That uh, I could be wrong, but we life is not about finding oneself. It's about creating oneself. Yeah, I feel like that's what I've been doing. I yeah, had this, yeah you, you have been, absolutely. That's what you're describing. I just had this feeling in my heart that, you know, that this was this beautiful, loving person and I wanted to be her and I wasn't happy with being me at the time and and I needed to get back to this. And that's funny because I say back. I needed to get back to knowing who I am. But I was also moving forward to something that 
that just seemed right in my heart, but I didn't know I wasn't that person yet. So it's, yeah. it's a little convoluted, yeah, you know, but know. it, it know. makes yeah. sense somehow. <laughs> yeah, it does. I understand. <laughs> now, do you think that all people in Western civilization have been culturally programmed for self-hatred? I think that they've been conditioned for separation and a feeling of inadequacy and unworthiness and and a lot of fear that has kept them from trusting their own instincts. Like there's a lot of looking outside for the answer, like this person, that person, that church, this book, like the answer is out there. And that everybody has the same answer. Like there's a one size fits all answer. And I think that is completely false. As I'm, I know it's false because the, the message that I've gotten when I asked for, I said, you know, listen, God's source creator universe, you want me to go out and help people to love themselves. Give me one simple thing that I can share with people that they know that they're, they can trust themselves and that they're totally unique and that they're, they're all loved equally. Like, how can I possibly share that simply? And the message was your thumbprint, that everybody has a unique thumbprint, a unique stamp. It's like you're designed intentionally. You have this thumbprint suit. You come into it, and it's got all these hidden bells and whistles that you have to discover, and your thumbprint suit has like particular glasses that only you can see out of. And it makes the world look a certain way. And nobody else has those glasses or that thumbprint suit because they have no idea what you're talking about. They're never going to get it. You're the one that has to get it. Are, so you, like, see, are you using the word suit, thumbprint yeah. suit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you slide into your thumbprint suit, you okay. know, like your soul slides into this thumbprint suit, this body, and then makes it come alive. Mm-hmm. And then you walk around in it, you know, and the real you is the soul. The real you is the bigger you. It's the, it's the one that doesn't have a body. And then you come into this body and you're being this right now. Whatever is designed inside this thumbprint suit, you get to experience it, period. Do you, do you believe that our world is moving right now toward a whole new awakening I know it is. Absolutely. I mean, just looking at Austin over the last eight years, when I started taking my energy medicine training and I was going to business networking international meetings, (laughs) BNI, and I was walking in there talking about energy healing and energy medicine, people looked at me like I had three heads. And that was only seven years ago. Now, if you went into one of those meetings, they would look at you and they would say, is that like Reiki? Mm-hmm. or is that some other kind of healing they have some sophistication with it now they know what questions to ask and they wouldn't have known that they did not know that seven years ago so i absolutely believe that we are we're awakening i think the earth is waking us up i think this the galaxies are waking us up i think everything is pouring light in so that we'll wake up and realize that we are all from the same source we're all cut from the same cloth, even if we don't like a certain part of that cloth. <laughs> We're still all cut from the same cloth. Do you have a, a clear image of what this awakening will look like? Well, I think it will look like people um, struggling 
trying to hold on to their little empires that they built because they thought that was what they were supposed to be doing. And eventually, just like I did, realizing how unfulfilling it is and wanting some something deeper, like experiencing a deep inner yearning for something more profound and more meaningful and more satisfying and more more abiding. I think that people, the thirst for love, the thirst for love itself will wake people up. It's a wonderful vision to have. Now, tell us about White Eagle, an ascended master who specializes in rainbow light activation (laughs) of human DNA. Absolutely. So White Eagle has been a guide of mine for quite a while, unbeknownst to me, most of my life. I've always been attracted to indigenous um, teachings and indigenous people and their traditions and kind of watching from afar and, you know, really yearning to participate. And uh, ever since I was a little kid, you know, picking out posters and things from my wall that had to do with Native American. And then when I started on my path, I was, of course, led to to earth-based spirituality. And I started studying different traditions and uh, with the four winds I studied with the Carol shamans and their traditions and incorporated to become um, part of that lineage in my own way like a little adjunct that's sort of you know welcomed uh, by the Carol and other lineages as well and just started practicing and learning and I downloaded teachings all kinds of teachings that were a synthesis of information I gained from all my different trainings, but then also beyond that. So there's been this really deep wisdom that has come to me in my life. And now I know that that's from White Eagle. And I was able to um, to get to a place of complete clarity on it through uh, a deep meditative journey. And I was able to connect and all the dots connecting for me on how this uh, this soul has played a role in my life, this ascended master. So it is really um, what I what I find most endearing about White Eagle is is how connected to the earth and the earth's magic uh, that he is, and and how connected he is also to the galaxies and. And what they call the uh, the rainbow bridge, you know, the rainbow bridge that connects many galaxies together. And the rainbow light is the highest frequency healing light that we can receive. It is all colors of the rainbow. And it's particularly important right now because we are all colors of the rainbow on Earth needing to embrace each other as part of the spectrum of life that's been created for this plane of existence. So the Carol shamans are keepers of the rainbow light, and they have um, on their holy mountain, Alsengate, is a rainbow lagoon. And the rainbow lagoon actually has a crystal portal in it to travel to other galaxies, which is really fun. Um, and, you know, you can do it in your mind, you know, just like in a drum journey or something like that. It's not like you actually get into a little ship in your physical body and go, you know, just for those of you who might be questioning that. But it's just more like an etheric... Um, imagine it, you know, journey through your imagination, which is your imagination is the great spirit. It's connected to the great spirit. That's the power. So the rainbow light is very healing. When people receive that, it's extremely healing to them. 
And that Rainbow Lagoon is, is a source for that, that healing light. So he operates in that sphere. He operates um, through, through those teachings, through indigenous teachings, and he just reminds us to connect in with our hearts and to connect, you know, the stars and the earth together through our, our being, through our oneness. You uh, were saying a word, was it caro or taro? Caro. So it's Q apostrophe E-R-O. And they are um, the wisdom keepers from Peru, from the Andes Mountains. Okay. And you, you also mentioned that you had the awareness about the connection with White Eagle through a deep meditative journey. Yes. Was that a guided meditation? That journey was a personal journey, and it was plant medicine journey, because the plant medicine at that point helped me to release um, egoic control over my awareness and my knowing so that I could relax into receiving you know, this, uh, this bridge to the etheric realms. Sometimes our egos get in the way of that. You know, they really try to keep you mm, locked into this third dimension and thinking that all of this is real. And so if you want to really have um, access to other dimensions where ascended masters operate, you know, etheric dimensions, then you have to be able to get free of this construct for a little while. And sometimes plant medicine is helpful for that. Like this is like... Is it like microdosing? No, this wasn't that. It was um, it was an all night ceremony, and I was being cared for right in that ceremony, right. and so that I could just relax back and have the journey. And what was the, if you don't mind saying, was it was it peyote? No, it wasn't. I have worked with peyote, but it was not peyote. Uh, this particular medicine was a heart opening medicine. This is a medicine to open the heart, and so that you could um, unlock the wisdom of your own heart, which is, you know, a lot of people you're asking me about, um, people in Western culture have been programmed for self-hatred. And a lot of this has to do with the closing of the heart. It's sort of like a crust that forms around a person's heart, like this thick, thick crust. And the thicker the crust, the more the person just seems like heartless, you know, like they just don't have any empathy the thicker the crust. And how does the crust get there? Well, the crust gets there through, you know, apathy, through trauma, through trying to, you know, um, defend yourself or protect yourself. That crust could get really thick. Um, and through a lot of things that you tell yourself, like, oh, I don't care what that person says, or, oh, that doesn't bother me, or, oh, that person's beneath me. You know, whatever the little judgments are that we say, all of that, and every time we go against ourselves, you know, every time we, we take an action that is against ourselves that we know we shouldn't be doing, like we steal from someone or we, we rape somebody or we hurt somebody, that adds more crust around the heart. And mm. then it's pretty soon the heart is just so surrounded by this thick, thick crust that the only way to wake up is if you get a crack in it. And that's where I love, you know, this idea of the crack in the crust is where the light comes in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's actually the light coming out. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, I can see that. What will people learn when they read your latest book, The Second Wave Transcending the Human Drama? 
Well, what people will uh, learn, and particularly people who maybe have had a really hard time on Earth in this life and feel like they don't belong and felt like they wanted to go home, wherever home is, um, the whole time they've been here, like, I just want to go home. This place is crazy. Get me out of here. Those people in particular, because they're volunteers to the planet at this time to help us to make the transition into a higher octave of human consciousness. And these people have done a great service already. The work that they've been doing in their family lines and in their personal lives to heal ancestral karma and to heal, you know, patterns of human suffering that run through family lines that get passed from father to son and mother to daughter. And these are really deep into the human DNA because they actually get, they get trapped in the human, human DNA gets passed on. Uh, generation to generation. And so that's why sometimes you might feel like, well, I know this behavior is really bad and I'm not going to do it. But then you get to be a parent and then all of a sudden you find yourself doing the same thing and you wonder, how the heck am I doing that? I wouldn't do that. Why am I doing that? Well, because there's just there's this overwhelming um, force in your body that's that's forcing you to repeat the patterns. So that's what these people have been here to do is to intercept those patterns and break them up to disrupt the patterns. So disruption is necessary and it's very uncomfortable to be a disruptive force in your family because it means that you're going to get potentially rejected by your family, misunderstood, you know, ostracized. And these are all really challenging things. But if you know in your heart that you're called to do what you're doing to disrupt the patterns, then you know, this is kind of what's been happening for these people. And they can feel really alone. Like, gosh, I just... I just don't even belong here. I just spend nothing but trouble. So this book is really comforting to a lot of people in that category, uh, people that fit that description. They tell me that they, I mean, they're reading the book and they just burst into tears. I mean, just cry a river because thank God that somebody finally gets it. So mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. that's really who the book is for. <laughs> well, it's for a lot of people. It, uh, mm-hmm. Your books are on Amazon, right? Yes. Good, good. Do you invest in formal personal development? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can't see my own eyebrows, you know, so <laughs> I, uh, I need help. If I'm going to be of service to other people, I've got to constantly be mindful of my own shadow so that I don't project my shadow onto other people. I don't, um, you know, so I'm really aware of, of minds and pitfalls from my own human domestication so that I can be a better service to people with a bigger heart. So I'm constantly um, investing in personal development activities. Can you you name one that's really been very impactful to you, a program or a a teacher? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I've had so many wonderful trainings. I mean, my first uh, few trainings were the Four Winds uh, School with Alberto Vialdo, really wonderful training there. Um, also Heather Ashamara, I trained with her for years, uh, with her warrior goddess training. Um, I've also studied with the power path, uh, which is run by Jose and Lena Stevens and their daughter, Anna. And that's a beautiful program, really beautiful teachings, very grounded in, in, um, indigenous tradition. And, um, 
Yeah, and I've had really great coaches. I mean, I just have personal, really wonderful personal mentors and coaches. And I do work with plant medicine as well. And I, I believe that plants are excellent teachers, very good teachers, if we can see it that way. Um, tobacco is a wonderful teacher. I've done tobacco dieta in the jungle, you know, where I've actually integrated tobacco into my being for protection and 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 for teaching. And other plants as well, ayahuasca certainly, uh, peyote. These medicines are there to help us to reach a higher state of consciousness while we're in the physical body so that we can really heal our minds and heal our bodies and heal our hearts and ascend our consciousness. How do you use tobacco? I use tobacco in daily prayer. So much like uh, Native Americans will use tobacco as a, as a sacred medicine, um, I use tobacco to make daily prayers at the start of every day. Well, do, you, I mean, do you actually smoke? I don't. I wouldn't say I smoke it. I more like you know pull the tobacco out of out of the mapacho cigarette and then I blow it. So it's more like a blowing of it. It's not oh. like I don't inhale it in my lungs. Actually, inhaling tobacco in your lungs is um, disrespectful to the medicine. That's not what tobacco is here for. Tobacco is used to clear energy. It's used for prayers. It's used for healings where um, in a healing ceremony, for example, I will blow tobacco on the person during the healing to remove negative energy or to clear out their chakra, for example. Like maybe they've gotten some stuck energy in there and they need it cleared out or maybe there's an entity or something hanging on. And so you blow the tobacco and the tobacco takes care of that. So tobacco is a healing medicine. It's very powerful, and it's been abused by Western culture as well. What kind of tobacco do you use? I use mapacho tobacco, which is from the jungle. And how do you, where do you get that? Well, I get it when you go down to the jungle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to the jungle in about 20 minutes, so I'll look, <laughs> I'll look for some. <laughs> You'll go get some. <laughs> Um, you mentioned one of the movements was the power path. One of the yes. yeah, okay. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Well, I've set a really big goal for myself, or my soul has. My mission is to be a leader with the impact and inspiration of Martin Luther King, but in a way that's perfect for Carrie Hummingbird. And I think the perfect for Carrie Hummingbird is to just inspire people to live from their hearts and to accept each other's journeys as that unique thumbprint. And if I can do those two things, I think I will be very successful in this life. It's it's great how clear you are about that. You don't even have to think about it. And, uh, yeah, I feel it. It's a, yeah, it's a vision, and you feel it, exactly. Yeah. So what is your favorite book besides your own? My favorite book to this day is still The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and I think every third grader should get handed that book and have to read it because it would save the world a lot of drama if people would start understanding the four agreements really early. Yep. Be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Yeah. Do your best. <laughs> and don't make assumptions. Yeah. And on the surface, it seems like, oh, come on, this is so simple. And yet, oh, <laughs> I mean, that's the way of the warrior. Yes. I did a course called Enlightened Warrior Training Camp with uh, T. Harv Eker. And uh, uh, one of the declarations was, my word is law. Like once I give that, I honor it. Yes. You know, and mm -hmm. people need it because today people, 
it seems like it's okay to just say you're going to do something and then not do it. Right. That's very common, right? It's very common. It is. And it's it's always been strange to me, Lewis, that um, people can do that because I have this thing inside of me and I don't think all people have it, I've come to realize. It's like a lightning bolt. Like if I get close to even telling a little tiny lie or doing something a little tiny bit wrong, like I have this lightning bolt that goes through me and I'm like, I just can't do it. Like, <laughs> I can't do it. So I don't think other people have that, but I feel like it's like my integrity or truth meter or something like that. Like it just, maybe it's Archangel Michael. I don't know, but it just comes through me and man, I got to obey it. You know, I I cannot, I just can't. Well, I grew up feeling what you're talking about and I used to get, it was amazing to me that somebody could say something and not do it. But I discovered that my reaction to that wasn't helping. This is me, my journey. I was, yeah. because I would get adamant about it. It's like, I mean, what, what do you mean? I mean, you said, you know, as opposed to recognizing it's not really personal. It's not encouraging, but it's not personal. And not everyone is going to honor that. I don't even think for a lot of people, it's in their minds, a form of lying. It's not about lying. It's about Okay, I said it on Tuesday, but Thursday I changed my mind. Right? <laughs> and that's yeah. possible. No, yeah, yeah I mean, really. Sometimes we do change our minds. I mean, I changed my mind about my marriage, right? I changed my mind for good reasons. That's different. <laughs> no, it is. It's not the same as saying to somebody, yeah. okay, on Wednesday at 4 o'clock, I am definitely going to call you. And then you just don't do it. That's, you know. Yeah, that's changing the plan without communicating that the plan has been changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, though, about the nuances. And and there's different levels of mastery on this planet at the same time. And I think that's really what we have to realize and what I've come to realize is that there's different levels of self-mastery operating on this planet all at once. You know, just as we are a human and we go from being a baby to a toddler to a teenager to an adult – you know, so do souls. And so we have souls on this planet that are sort of like babies and toddlers and teenagers and young adults and adults and, you know, old wise ones. And so we have the whole spectrum. And so if you're kind of on the upper end of that, then and you get frustrated with how other people around you just don't get it, then maybe it's a message for you is to, to come into compassion. Like, okay, well, you're, maybe you're here to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, exactly. You know better. Once you know better, you can do better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you have a favorite quote? You know, I like, I'm not sure I have the exact quote, but I love this Einstein quote. You can't solve the same the problem by the same uh, situation that created it. Like, you've got to get out of the matrix. Like, whatever the problem is, you've got you've got to get out of the matrix. And that's what I did in my own healing journey. I... I got out of the conditioning. I got out of the framework. I got out of the words even. Um, all those years of psychotherapy, I stepped out of that and I went to the energy. I went to the energy medicine. I, I reboot the system. And I think that, you know, if you find yourself banging your head against a brick wall trying to change something for 20 years, maybe it's time for a new modality. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that the saying is something like this. You you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it yes. or the same thinking that created it. It's It requires a whole different paradigm. You know, otherwise, yeah, you're just you're asking the same wrong questions and getting the same bad answers. And that's called a, a loop. Yeah, it's a loop. Yeah, which are you familiar? <laughs> are you familiar with the plays of Samuel Beckett? I'm sorry, I'm not. He was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant 20th century playwright. Bleak, really bleak. But his vision was not just bleak; it was quite funny, scary funny. I'm mentioning it because of this. He he has a play called End Game. Oh, yes. And just in the first moments of the play, without any any words being spoken, there's a character's behavior that I don't know how many people catch it when they're watching it, but it's like being shown a mirror of the absurdity of most human activity. Mm -hmm. What he does is he has a hard time walking, but he kind of struggles to get to one side of a wall of a room, puts a a ladder against the wall, climbs up, then he has a a, a telescope and he looks out, and then he he comes down the ladder, he begins to walk across the room, and then he stops because he realizes, I forgot the ladder. So he goes back and gets it brings it to the other side, repeats the same ritual. And once again, on his way back, he's forgotten the ladder. So he keeps doing the same thing over and over. Yes. It begins like that. I mean, it's quite, and you're going, what? You know, a lot of people who just used to traditional drama would probably walk out of the theater. They go, this doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Because he's saying a lot of what you do does not make sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's a lot of it, yeah. A lot of it. I mean, it's just incredible. If you could change just one thing in the world, what would it be? If I could change one thing, it would be to allow every person to have their unique thumbprint journey and to trust it. To you know, that they could trust their own journey and stop trying to judge their journey against somebody else's or judge each other's journey and try to make it all the same. Like, stop that. Just enjoy your journey. Really get in there and discover what has been put inside your little thumbprint suit for you to find out. Like, it's your journey. You're the only one that can take it. So I think that's the main thing, I think, is we clean up a lot of this entanglement if people would stop trying to control each other's journeys and judge it. Just leave it alone. Let each person have their own journey. I love it. I love it. You say just stop it because you can go on YouTube and and see this. It'll make you laugh. You remember the comedian Bob Newhart? Yes. Have you ever seen his skit called Stop It? <laughs> yeah. You have. I you think seen? I have seen that. Oh God. Yeah. He's he's playing a psychiatrist. Yeah. And the woman comes in and he just you know very dead <laughs> He says yeah it's only five dollars for the session. Yeah. And she gives him the five bucks and he listens to her for above five minutes and he goes okay i'm gonna give you the therapy now she says what is it he yells stop it <laughs> that's it <laughs> it's like <laughs> if only it was that easy yeah i mean you know well you know what the irony is that it re it really is it could be. You can we, decide right now you can the thing is that we are 
our egos, and I'm including myself in this, has we have made such a it's got to, if it's not complex, there's something wrong with it. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> the intellect does that trick. Oh, but come on, it's only stupid. It's too easy. Only stupid people would be able to clear it up just like that. I'm more complicated than that. Yeah, okay, good. Enjoy. How's that working out for you? How's that working for you? You know? Yeah, and I got to say, you know, I, I totally call myself out on that too, Lewis. I had like 20 years in psychotherapy. Why? Because because I'm stupid? No, because I'm way too smart. You know, <laughs> I think that's really a problem. I think the smarter you are, the worse it gets. I mean, it just, your mind just twists around everything and it wants to complicate everything and it's got lots of words to do it. I mean, I, I really is, is just, it's problematic. It's a beautiful thing to have a gifted mind. It's also really troublesome. <laughs> so well, you, you got to keep an eye on it. You, you know who really understands uh, and and really works this against us, uh, cats. Yes, they do. They 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 look and all of their behavior is about playing on our egos. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I know that cats talk and they'll, they'll go and say, you know, it's amazing that my owner constantly pets me and I purr, and. They think they're petting me because they love me. They're petting me because it feels good to their hand. Yes. (laughs) You know, and that's how I get food from them and all sorts of other things that I want. Exactly. You know. (laughs) They're clever. Very clever. So how can people contact you? Absolutely. So you can go to my website, which is com. It's K-E-R-R-I, hummingbird.com. And there's a free gift there for anybody who wants to claim it at forward slash gift. Forward slash gift. Wonderful. And any final thoughts for our storytellers today? Well, I just really enjoyed this. I, I knew when I saw your podcast and I saw you, I thought, yeah, this is awesome. I love the idea of storytelling because that is exactly what we're doing. And and human beings are definitely the best storytellers <laughs> ever. And we just got to learn how to tell a better story. So I love that you do this podcast. It's really beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to ask you for a an energy manifestation. I just thought of this. <laughs> You think, now I'm serious. I I just completed a course that I created, which I submitted to be launched today. And because I'm an actor and it's a course on, online course on how to audition for the camera. You mentioned storytelling and that's all, mm. all about that. And I would like you to manifest an energy that it will be received well and be a big success. Okay, so how about we do this? So just close your eyes. Okay. And imagine the people that you serve with this beautiful offering. And now imagine them and their little hearts all around the world. And just let your brain show you where, where they all are, like light it up. Mm. And then just broadcast your message. I love it. And it's true because I, <laughs> I actually have thought about that because that, I know that what I've created, I mean, it's come out of my f- four decades of experience teaching and acting 
And I know that there's a real need for it. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Yeah. You have the power within you. Yes. And it's really been a delight talking to you. Wonderful. I loved being on here and I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, yes. And Saturday, uh, this interview will go live and I will send you the links and everything and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you. I appreciate that. And were you interested in being on Soul Nectar Show? Do you think I can contribute to that? Absolutely. I love your storytelling angle. Sure. Absolutely. That'd be fun. Okay, I'll send you all the materials a little bit later today. That's great. I'll talk to you soon then. Thanks again. Thank you. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Carrie Hummingbird. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course... Remember that there's a free gift waiting for you at the website, a downloadable ebook that I have created for you. It's a game changer called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Carrie took us to some very interesting places today. It was quite a journey. And I'll assume that for some of you, she took you to some foreign places places. And there may be a tendency to resist some of the things that you heard because, well, you don't hear them often. I learned something very powerful from a mentor of mine who said, all pain comes from resistance. So I would urge you to relax, open to what she has to say, listen to it again, and You'll be amazed by what you might discover. And to help you, to guide you on that journey, just begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.